0: Welcome to the rest is education. This week we'll be answering the question, what's the power of the picture book? My name is Aaron Huber and
1: And my name is David Marshall. And this week we don't have Ross with us. Instead, we have a very special guest, Isabel, who's come on to take Ross's place. And we're really excited to have her here to talk about picture books. Welcome, Isabel.
2: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here as a stand-in too. Um, I really enjoyed working with David and Aaron. And um, just a tiny bit about me, I was head of English and have a passion for literacy at a school in London. But now I'm a mum of two, so I'm knee-deep in picture books.
1: So knee-deep's the word. I mean, we are all involved in picture books in some way, and we love them We are big advocates for them on the rest is education. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of start looking at a few of them, broadly taking a chronological approach to it. And we'll be looking a little bit about what picture books mean for different ages. So my first question I'm going to ask, and I'm going to put this out to Aaron, is, Aaron, what are picture books? And I know that sounds like a really obvious question,
0: but maybe you've got a really in-depth answer. Thank you for throwing that question to me. Uh, So picture books generally... Are, are books geared or written with a, a younger audience in mind and use a combination? or It doesn't always have to be a combination. It could be pictures or illustrations uh, with, with words to tell a story. I hope that satisfies that that question. Now, before we go on, David, do you know perhaps what the first picture book might have been? Up until
1: about five minutes ago, I didn't know this question, but then we decided to Google it because we're running our hot podcast on picture books, and it turns out it's in the British Library. It's the first – it's often described as the first children's picture book, and it was one of the first books about education to be aimed at children, not teachers. It's got a Latin title, Orbis Sensualium Pictus, and it's designed to help children learn the letters of the alphabet. It looks pretty cool. And it was first published in Latin and German in Nuremberg in 1658. So that's apparently it. Although I feel pictures go way back. I mean, as cave paintings, um, ancient manuscripts, illuminated manuscripts. Pictures are part of our culture and our history across all cultures.
0: Even going back to early churches, because the masses were illiterate right so they used the the reason why a lot of these old churches are so beautifully decorated is to tell stories from the bible to people who otherwise would be able to to read them but i just want to point out that this first picture book for kids uh that david uh can can pronounce the title to isn't that far off from current day picture books it's essentially teaching the alphabet with a, a picture of like a goat or a frog or a rabbit uh, next to the, the corresponding letter. So I don't know how far we've come with picture books, if this is the first one. I think they're
1: there. there's that combination of words and images that have to go together. And it's, it is that explicit aiming at learning, or at least at children's reading, which seems to be the, the function of, of what a picture book is and why it distinguishes it from, say, illuminated manuscripts of the medieval age. Isabel, I'd love to turn to you now and um, really sort of start thinking a little bit about what, I and mean, we've talked about what picture books are for, but with your experience, how are picture books used at a quite an early age or how could they be used? But but no, sort of what's um, your experience of them?
2: So my experience is um, that they are absolutely vital to Preschool children and on, obviously, into the early years of school. And I say that because I had a very kind of proud moment of being a, um, not quite ex teacher, current teacher in some kind of form or other, but that my child's class teacher, who uh, my child's in reception, she came up to me and she said, We know that you read books at home because the way Primrose responds in class to the questions about a book we're looking at suggests that you ask questions at home from the books that you read together Um, because I know that as a child gets older and they're doing more and more um, literacy-based activities in class that children who are readers and who get books and have that understanding of them can do so well in the classroom. So I have been reading every day to my children, since they were probably 14 or 15 months. And at the beginning, you've got a slight sort of blob-like child sitting on your lap who probably doesn't understand very much of what is being said. And there are moments where you think, why am I doing this? But research suggests that if you start early and you do it every day, that stuff gets absorbed. The rhythm of sound, the power of the picture, Um, the odd word they might recognise. And that's the beginning of the journey, I think. It's really important to start very young and not be worried if you know you've got a child sitting on your lap that doesn't actually really get what's going on or what's happening in a book. That's okay. It's about the experience of it to start off with, and that's the beginning of the journey as far as I'm concerned.
1: Thank you very much. And and how young are we talking?
2: Where would you start? um, As I was saying, I would honestly start at sort of 14, 15 months and definitely by 18 months um, doing a story as part of the bedtime routine is um, really important. And what's great is if you start once they're into that whole bath and bedtime routine that you put in a little story at that time at, say, sort of 17, 18 months, um, there's a market of books that cater for that age as well. Because right at the beginning of their journey with books, I would say that it's not really so much about the story, that's too much for them to take on, really. It's about books that have got great texture to them or books that have got flaps books that have got really lovely pictures where they can recognize a tree or a boat or a bus you know you're really in the territory of trying to get some word word recognition to basic nouns to colors and that's where you want to be starting you're not really interested in a story arc or anything like that even on its most basic level it's much more about recognition and obviously enjoyment i would say
0: one of uh my son is, is he just turned 15 months I, I've been reading to him I don't I don't know ever since probably he gets sit up on his own and one book that's endured the, the the months of reading is is this book called Tales and it's a board book and a texture book that you're talking about so the, for the people who don't know it, a texture book is a book that has literally different textures like tales has furry you know you could feel a furry tail or a bumpy tail or a rough tail And it's, you know, at first he wouldn't even touch or realize the the different textures. And now, you know, he's all, he's all about grabbing that book and and looking at it, even though we've moved on to, I I think I would say a step above those books, he still enjoys these sort of learning experiences in in these different types of texture books.
1: And so it's really important to invest in or, or get from the library these books. But I presume that if you've got books, particularly with flaps and and pop up things, they're going to get ripped, aren't they?
2: Yeah. And actually, I now with the four and a half year old reception child use our local public library a lot which is a fantastic resource it's full of picture books for them but you're right when you're very early on you've got to kind of take a deep breath and be a bit relaxed because even if you're the most diligent of parent uh, flaps get ripped off and things get ruined but that is just part of the process and you have to kind of just go with that so you're right um to begin with that is part of the journey
0: we buy a, l- a lot of books at the uh, at sort of the charity shop because you know you, you you pay two bucks for it and you don't feel so bad when he first thing he does is is rip three of the flaps right off of it and you don't feel like oh, I've just wasted twenty bucks so that that's how we get around it and without ruining the public library books.
1: Aaron, you were talking earlier. We were chatting about motor skills and how
0: that that yeah,
1: function of becoming more. Yeah, it was it, with hands. the
0: with the yeah with the flap books. Um, I think uh, at least I was able to sort of perceive and and see uh, a little bit of of mental development over time. From you know when you're first reading the flap book, you're you're doing you're flipping over the flaps, you know, and acting surprised at what's what's behind each flap and. Um, And then it gets to, you know, flipping it down together or, you know, your kid realizing where the flap is and sort of pointing or putting their hand on it. And then now we're at the point, I'm at the point with my son where he's anticipating where I am in the reading and he's pulling down the flap and sort of also we've read these books hundreds of times. And so he's got the motor skills now and the sort of mental capacity to know know sort of when, when do I put that down and how do I flip that down with. without always ripping the flap off. So a little bit of uh, of, of hand-eye coordination going on there, I think, as well.
2: You make an interesting point there, Erin, about reading the same book over and over again. And um, that's anecdotally something I find interesting, which is that some children have a personality where they become quite fixated on a couple of chosen books and they almost want them every night on repeat, whereas some children are really happy to read a great range of books. And I think that that's something um, maybe that continues in children's reading. You know, you do get children who want to read an entire series and become fixated on something like Beast Quest later on, and those that are happy to kind of move between genre. And It seems to me that there's no right or wrong on that in terms of literacy. It's you just have to go with what your child wants to do, because that will be where the enthusiasm is. So if you've got the 10th night in a row of reading a Pip and Posey book by Julia Donaldson, that's kind of where you have to go. And when you get a moment to introduce something else, you can. Uh, Luckily, I haven't been too stuck in a rut with that one, but I know friends who have. But I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just a personality thing.
0: Uh, I was just going to say, I think it helps with what you were talking about earlier with word recognition and, and picking up various words is, is just going over the same thing over and over again, even though it's boring for us, for them there, you know, it takes them a lot longer to mentally process these things. So, yeah. you know, maybe it's the 20th time going through a book that they realize that, you know, that's a tree and then the story is talk about a tree and now they can recognize what a tree is or that's a, a frog or um, Whatever it is, but uh, you know, you have to think about the, the the time it takes for them to mentally process what you're what you're doing. So
1: we're talking about distinct sort of developmental stages here, and we, we've talked about the the word recognition and the the motor skills, and then there's the shift to being able to sort of get narrative.
2: I think in my notes, because I have been geekily keeping a list of um, books that my children have enjoyed at various different stages. So in my notes, I kind of have down that between about 18 months and two years, that time frame, certainly about two years, um, the children can then move on away from these very simplistic, what you call baby books almost, um, or first books, um, to books that have got a very simple narrative um there's a fantastic flap series by julia donaldson called um the acorn wood series um postman bear um is one example of them and they have um they're still flap books they're still board books but each page contains let's go with one sentence some form of action and um it has a very very simple narrative arc perhaps there's a little bear who's inviting three friends to a birthday party he cooks a cake they come around and eat the cake with him and give him presents that is a story and there are some fantastic examples of those very very short narratives which is the beginning of that journey to understand how a story goes
0: Isabel, do you think because I end up reading when I, I go to the, the the charity shop, right? I just buy, you know, an armful of books that look cool to me and and hopefully my son. And so I end up buying books that that do have a bit of a narrative that I'm reading to him at at this point. Do you think there's any benefit to sort of doing that a bit early, as opposed to to holding off to when they you know they could comprehend what you're saying?
2: Um, No, it probably doesn't matter. Um, I I really don't think it does. Um, And as I say, I definitely had, as I mentioned earlier, that distinct feeling of reading a narrative simple book to my youngest child with her not really knowing what's going on. But you kind of have to start somewhere and not worry too much about it because she's still getting enjoyment from looking at the bear on the page and lifting the flap. And at some point, she'll start to understand that the bear's giving out invitations to a party. Um, But it's okay for that to come later because you're keeping these books for quite a while. And so and actually, in some ways, it's quite satisfying to start off um, reading something like that where, you know, the child doesn't really understand. But slowly you can see the penny drop over the months that you use the book. The other thing that the books are quite clever to do, which I've noticed, is firstly, they can tend to be quite repetitive. So the book I read this evening to my just over two year old is a tiger um, that plays a hide and seek game with three of its friends. And each of the friends all basically hide in a very similar format and the tiger then finds them and that's very common you're getting these repetitive little mini stories within a story which keep occurring these repetitive events um, which must be their way of helping the child kind of secure an event in their head by happening about three times that's very common The other books that are very common and excellent from a numeracy perspective, which is obviously something we haven't really touched on, is there are so many excellent counting books. They're incredibly popular and I think um, really important for developing children's numeracy skills as well as their literacy skills. I've got a
0: book here. I showed you this earlier. It's a a series called Little Blue Truck. And it it does both of those things that you're talking about. You know, they're all about this journey of, of... a blue truck tapes uh, This one is in the springtime. So, you know, he's going to see, it's a flat book as well. He goes to see uh, ducks in, in a pond and there's nine of them. So you can count them And the next page is, so he's going to see a, uh, a cow and, you know, uh, there's just one calf. And so each page is, you know, he's going to see a different animal. You lift the flap and it's a, you know, it's 10 pigs. Sorry. You guys can't see, but it's, you know, it's, each page is essentially the same story with a different animal and a different yeah. number of them. And that pattern comes through.
1: If you, if I'm thinking of what I think is the most successful picture book for children in the UK, at least over the last sort of 20 something years, it's the Gruffalo. And I know that's not for very young children. That's, that's slightly older, but there's a, that pattern that's the little mouse going into the wood and, and, the fox sees the mouse and the mouse looks good. And then there's the same response that the animals he meets, this snake, the fox, and the owl, that he gives to them about the Gruffalo. And so by the end, of course, the children know. They know exactly what the, the mouse says to, the, to these animals. And then the same pattern occurs with the Gruffalo. So it's sort of repeated all over again. And there's something beautiful about that. And the children learn those words.
2: Yes, which is something that fades out in um, more, um, you know, as as you go into older children's books. It is very much rooted in the picture book, this repetitive nature. Oh, the other thing that we talked about before we came on air that is um, so phenomenally popular amongst picture books is the power of the animal. I was saying it is extremely difficult to buy picture books that do not uh, feature animals as the characters. And it is a really easy solution because it makes them able to be international in a way. They they are not from a country. Therefore, all children can recognize themselves in the little bear or the mouse. So I can see why they're such a great and powerful tool. But it does lack variety. I, I would press you all to go to a bookshop and look at the selection on offer and see how many you can find that that don't contain animals as some of the key characters or or in fact, all of the characters.
1: It's It's the rest is education challenge. You have to see if you can find some books for very young children, some picture books
0: that don't have these animal characters
1: and tell us about them.
0: We did talk about this, David, that pirates and astronauts in space are another sort of version or another sort of area that that tends to pop up a lot i think though i might be jumping the gun with ages but um uh, i do see a lot of uh, you know pirates and astronauts in, in books as well is that because they they're they're almost topic books as well or i mean
1: that's a fiction book you've got there but there's a certain level at which you're slipping into which we'll talk about <laughs> Topics.
2: There's only, um, yeah, I think though also with preschool children or, you know, so and certainly EYFS, there are very specific topics which grab them. If you have little girls, you tend to be totally immersed in fairies and unicorns and rainbows. Mine like mermaids too. I'm being really gender stereotypical here, for which I apologise. And then you've got boys who are often extremely keen on pirates, trucks, dinosaurs. Wow, that is massive. My boy
0: already started his dinosaur yeah. phase.
2: Well, um, my husband was obsessed by dinosaurs. and he... <laughs> I thought you
0: were going to say my husband is still in his dinosaur Well, phase. yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, Anyway, he bought a lot of dinosaur gear um, for the two girls. And the eldest did start off diligently following his lead but has subsequently you know gone knee deep into princesses so i think that it's a commercial thing as well is that the um publishers know that there are certain pockets of popularity amongst children to which they then push which is a shame in a way you know it's a bit like with adult fiction certain things becoming very popular and then less commercial opportunities get looked over for the same reason they're you know less of a they're not a risky choice if you produce books about pirates or princesses. That's probably my slightly um, cynical view on the whole thing.
1: So there is an eye on what's going to sell really well, based on what's sort of broken ground before, and and also just sort of conforming, as you said, to gender stereotypes, and giving people to a certain extent, what they want, or what's been traditionally done before. Do Mm -hmm. we have anything that other, i'm, I'm sort of asking a similar question to the animal question but do we have anything that breaks that ground quite significantly are you got have you got anything that you feel is alternatives to that aaron or or, or as well
0: uh, i've got just one just thing i've noticed because i'm i am in the kids section of, of the bookstore more than i've ever been before in my life and there seems to be a lot of books now that are i think marketed towards parents and not what kids might want. There's like a scene like books about uh, politicians or about people that are in the media these days that maybe like, you know, like a a five-year-old wouldn't really care about. um, But like the parent wants them to want to care about that person. I don't want to name drop because, you know, whatever, there's all sorts of people that are great. And like, yes, kids should read about them eventually. But like, I don't think a a four-year-old needs to know about a Supreme Court justice or, you know, um, Things like that. And I think they're just geared towards towards parents instead of kids. Do you have you seen that as well?
2: Um, no, but maybe I've been a bit blinkered to it. Um, I can't say I have. I right, have so- though.
1: I have seen it and I, I know what you're talking about. I think I've seen uh these sort of quite stylized covers with a picture of the the historical figure, kind of a cartoon of them. I don't think I've ever looked inside, so I can't say whether they're actual picture books or or what they are. I imagine they are picture books, right?
0: Yeah, it could be like, you know, Marie Curie or something like that, but it, mm-hmm. it seems like geared towards a kid that, you know, doesn't know what radiation is. So why why do they need that book or doesn't know what there is a Supreme Court or what the Supreme Court is? And like, you know, it seems I could be wrong, but um f- from from my perspective, it looks like these are geared towards parents who are are hopeful and op- optimistic that their kid will find a new hero.
1: Can I suggest an alternative, which is that I think some of these books, yes, they might be geared towards parents, but they might also be geared towards slightly more old older children. And even, I'd say, even teenagers, because I think that, and this is the fundamental point that I feel about picture books really strongly, is that they're not just for very young children, neither are they even for primary school children. So I, I definitely gave my niece a few years ago, one of my nieces, a, a book which was probably a bit young for her but was sort of feminism for uh with with lots of pictures and things and like you said quite lots of these big kind of historical figures and i i thought to myself oh she's 14 i think it's maybe a bit young for her but she loved it and i think there's something great fun even for a child who's very much able to read and able to read harder books to then flick through and look at a book which is which is giving you information, accurate information, but still in a fun and quite well with through pictures as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
2: I, I totally agree. Um, although I'm not sure where the definition of a picture book versus a high quality nonfiction book starts and ends here, because I feel like I'm going towards the latter category in my examples, which are some of those beautiful sort of darling Kindersley books, which contain great images, but actually very high caliber text. In fact, I gave my 13 year old for Christmas, he's really into the Marvel characters. And there are some fantastically well written books produced by Marvel. Um, about the films and I did specifically look because I'd be doing a bit of tutoring with him for English at what the quality of the text was like and it's it's written for an adult but with huge amounts of graphics um, surrounding the text if I were a librarian I might be as bold as to call it a reference book or Mm -hmm. a non-fiction book but it's It's still got incredibly good illustrations or photography which are labelled. It's just that the text is at a much higher level. In fact, it's an adult written text. Is it kind of
0: like an eyewitness book? Yes, that type of thing,
2: exactly. But I'm not sure whether I'm deviating into a different genre. Probably fractionally I am. And I'm actually going to go back actually to touch on something which... Um, I think it's really important in terms of how to use the picture books. Kind of going back to sort of talking about children who are younger again, and particularly um, with my literacy hat on, um, when I'm reading with my reception age child, um, the power of the question when you're reading a picture book with these children is so vital um, because you're using the pictures to develop their comprehension skills. So at Aaron's age, a little baby, you can start you thinking, you know, at 41. Um, you, you are 41, you're a little darling child at home. Um, You can start determining whether he knows what a tree is by saying, can you point the tree in the picture? So at that age, you're really getting for word de- uh, recognition. So you've got some notion about whether they know it's a duck before they can actually say the word duck. They should be able to point to it. It, um, is, it
0: is a great feeling when it's really special start isn't to they? be able to do that.
2: And with my reception age child, every few words, if I see a simple CBC, consonant, vowel, consonant word, I might ask her to read that word because then I can check actually from a very subtle way what she can actually do in a normal book. So you've got sort of decoding and word recognition that's going on. Um, And then you move into literal understanding can they tell you the color of objects? Can they count things on the page? Can they locate something on the page? Can you tell? Can they tell you vaguely what's going on? And then the bit that I'm really trying to push at the moment, because I know what comes in the future of teaching English, is the inferential understanding, which you can still do from pictures. So I will ask both my children, you know, how does the dog feel in this picture? And they can say, oh, the dog feels sad because... It's crying, or oh yes, the weather looks rainy because people are carrying umbrellas. And I know that that skill is so vital when children get older. And it's something I can start to talk about now um, through pictures.
0: What well, Isabel, when do you think moving like forward from from that, from understanding like sort of what's happening in the story, to kids are kids able to comprehend like the moral or the message that Um, When should we be looking for that?
2: Yes, and that's such a brilliant question to ask, Erin, because um, when I created my book lists, I categorised the books according to how I think why they're good. And moral messages is a huge topic which comes up in so many books, you know, from its very basic about how to be kind or not be selfish. It's a really interesting question, and I think it comes quite late on at uh, definitely in, more in reception. So there's a really famous, Smeds and Smoos is a very famous Julia Donaldson book, which was produced as a TV film this Christmas on BBC. And that is a wonderful book about how you should be kind to different races, essentially, because the Smeds don't like the Smoos and the Smoos don't like the Smeds and ultimately they all come together in harmony. And I've been reading that book with Primrose probably two years. And it's only now that she's in reception, getting towards being five, that she's suddenly gone, oh, wow, you know, we should be kind to all those around us. And she's suddenly registering the larger, bigger picture message. And I think cognitively, that's just not something that comes to them for quite some time. And you're right to bring that up. It's really interesting and it's satisfying to start to see it is being noticed.
0: Very cool. I've I've always wondered uh, when he's gonna because he's not at a point where he understands the narrative. We're very much at the, you know, where's where's the bird, where's the duck level. Yeah. But uh, uh, we've been reading this book about this bear who gets sick and his woodland friends take care of him. Uh, and then I got sick and I was wondering in his head, does he does he understand? I'm like the bear right now, and uh, apparently not. He did not see me as the bear, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> he will one day so there's um there's
1: that shift we've started to talk about books as we go into reception in the UK we call that EYFS then there's in the again in the UK we have key stage one and I feel there's there's a, a books that can be read to children at a certain age before school or read with children and then you can return to them I'm teaching a year one and a year two class at the moment, and We've been looking at Michael Rosen's classic, which is uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And there's also another one, The Gruffalo, which I mentioned earlier. And I, I'm sure most of these children have read them before, but there's, there's, there's a something about kind of returning to books which you're familiar with. We use the term old friends to talk about that returning to those books. And I think you can return to them and get more out of them. The second, the third, the fourth reading... Not just in the way, as we were saying earlier, about a child wanting the same book every night, but in the sense that when you've kind of gone through a couple of years of education, as opposed to when you're pre-preschool, you Mm -hmm. see things differently and you start to get that, Isabel, you called it the inference.
2: I mean, actually, it would be a fantastic little literacy experiment to take something like the Smeds and Smoos by Julia Donaldson, which definitely can be read on many levels, and read it in some form of lesson with all of the children throughout the whole of a primary school and just see where the book took each year group because you would learn a lot about their cognitive level and understanding Um, and thought processes, it would be a really interesting thing to do, because at least that would be a wonderful power of the picture book, is the fact that because they're so short, generally speaking, they can obviously be used as a springboard for discussion, you could do the same with everyone and see what happens, be interesting.
1: So we did at our school that we all worked at together, we did philosophy for children, and in our last episode, we talked about the thinking school, and we didn't touch a lot on philosophy for children. But Isabel, you've you've taught this a bit. I don't know if Aaron, you've taught it. And picture books are essential for this, aren't they?
2: Yes, because from actually from purely practical point that I've just raised is that a picture book obviously doesn't take very long to read. It packs a great punch and is an excellent springboard to then have some form of theme discussion from it. So we used picture books a lot as our stimulus for conversation in those philosophy for children lessons, yes. And for me, that was probably one of the most useful ways that I use picture books in my teaching with the older children, was through that through that medium and you do you do need to carefully choose your picture book for that and they do tend to be the more esoteric thinking style picture books but um that's not a problem it's um either knowing someone who's got a good list or doing some quite good research online um to find the right picture books to aid your conversations or the kind of direction in which you want to go in
1: so we could talk about different topics i mean there are, there are books that really approach things that children feel very strongly at. I,
2: I totally agree because it allows them to dissociate from themselves from the situation. I think, um, I don't know a huge amount about this area, but I imagine that the books one can probably get about grief or about... Um, you know, parental illness or divorce, that kind of thing. I imagine it with a little bit of research that those areas could be so well covered by picture books that have beautiful illustrations and make a child feel comforted and warmed by um, by what they read. David's David, got one yeah. in his arms right now. I've Go got
1: one it. here. This is my favourite book, um, a picture book. It's one of my favourite books, actually. It's called Black Dog by Levi Pinfold. I think he's an Australian illustrator and writer. And on the front cover is just a wood, a snowy wood, very beautifully drawn, quite mysterious. And um, it's all about a huge black dog that comes to this family, this, this house, quite mysterious house in the woods. And it's enormous. So it's it's one eye takes up an entire window and everybody's quite understandably terrified of this dog apart from the youngest child who goes out to meet the dog and she kind of leads the dog on a merry dance around. And as it chases her, it gets smaller and smaller until it's the sort of normal sized dog that can come in and the family realise there was nothing to be afraid of all the time. Um, But I I think it's a, a book that all ages can get something out and have repeated conversations about. And there are lots, there are lots equally great quality, but this just happens to be for both the illustrations and, and the story, one of my faves.
0: Are you guys familiar with where, where the sidewalk ends? That was always one of my, Shell Silverstein, it's a collection of poems and drawings. Uh, Maybe that was more of an American uh, 80s uh, hit, but um, I don't know, just it very much brought up what you were talking about, very much brought up that where the sidewalk ends because it was a, even though they're poems it's not a it's not a you know a narrative story it very much has kind of reminded me of of growing up and sort of going through using these poems to kind of reflect on on what it was to, to be a kid at that time and that means so much doesn't
1: it to find ways into talking about what it means to be living in a world where things can be very difficult or scary but without without knowing why and and isabel you mentioned this almost soothing and reassuring the comfort and the safety of it as well. And that's a real function of picture books because of the both the story and the visuals. What about encouraging children to try new things or stoking imagination? Do you have any favourite books for those sorts of things?
2: Certainly imagination. I mean, so many of them are imaginative. Um, I'm just trying to think of which I would say the best examples are.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are um, so many. Right. I'm
2: actually gonna um flip it on its head though, and say, um, sometimes it surprises you what children like. I know we come across this all the time when you're teaching, but you know, sometimes they find the most boring kind of grammar exercise really, really soothing and interesting to do. And that's always like, wow, I never thought they'd enjoy that. But on a similar level, there are some quite prosaic picture books out there that are quite old-fashioned not a great deal happens I'm not gonna do a disservice to the author by mentioning the name where essentially you know the mum's really ill the children make a great old mess and the father's hopeless and it just um, sometimes children love books that are a little bit more boring and um, maybe that's a nice thing too is that Yes, they can stoke imagination. I think a lot do that, but also children love to almost see themselves in the story. And I'm not quite sure how often that happens, where the events are so kind of everyday and prosaic that they go, Oh yeah, that's kind of like me and mommy and daddy and things. Sometimes then everyone tries to be quite kooky. And I think sometimes straightforward is nice too.
0: David, you ordered you were showing me a book, choose your own adventure. Book, which I really enjoyed, yeah. it was like a middle schooler, but those were chapter books. Um, but you actually have a picture book version of it. I,
2: I have think a fairy it's worth tale name dropping one.
0: that. Yeah, I think that's it. Is that the same? Oh, one you
2: have you? a different one. No, I have, I, one I have by, a different one. I've got Nick Sharratt, I think is who I've used. So is that one where you can choose who the hero is and what happens? That's not of thing?
1: quite, but it is okay. a choose your own adventure, which I like. Aaron used to love as a kid. And it's quite interesting, but I'm reading this to year one at the moment. It's also quite infuriating because the stories kind of come to a dead end and they often want to know every other single story narrative. Oh, no. So, so, no, I mean, it's fun because I can always say next week, next week we'll do another one. So this picture book's giving me actually a lot of variety of different stories and I read it at the end of the lesson just to finish off. But I, I do find it really interesting that you are put in the sort of role of the the hero, if you like, of this story. Uh, and it's got pictures and it's based around fairy tales. So many of the children will know that the, the three little pigs... Did you give, the did Rapunzel, you give us the title yet? On. No, I haven't I given the title. I don't know if you tell us. I haven't given the title. This is called Endlessly Ever After and it's by Laurel Snyder and Dan Santat. I actually have to say one thing about it, which is the stories do have a little bit of a gruesome sometimes ending. Uh, One, the one that I read to them last week ended with the the main character getting flattened by a bathtub being chucked out of the window by one of the three little pigs. (laughs) It, It was sort of macabre and I kind of came to it with a bit of a sort of full stop. And then the children kind of looked at me slightly aghast and then just demanded the next story. So they clearly weren't too traumatized by it. When you're playing with more complex narrative forms, you're getting children at key stage one, even key stage two, used to the idea that you've got that there are different forms of narrative. It's not just straightforwardly beginning, middle, end. There are and there are different perspectives within those narratives. And I think that's an essential skill to teach children for when they get older so that they can understand more complex types of books. Because if we're talking we're talking about reading, we haven't mentioned the word phonics yet, but synthetic phonics is the fundamental way to develop um, decoding for children, but it's not the only thing. And it has to be go alongside knowledge of content. We talked about things like pirates. I'm not saying pirates is an essential topic, but it's a very popular one. Uh, And having the knowledge of whatever the content is, whether it's Egyptians or the Arctic, and then also having an understanding of how narratives shift and perspectives change i think these are really important things as well as to bring in as well as just the simple decoding and these are things that picture books you know and non picture books of course as your children get older can can give to them actually we so- haven't
2: touched on um on that level from a general knowledge perspective for helping comprehension there's a huge raft of really excellent non fiction picture books osborne the publishing house being particularly strong in that area they produce endless non fiction fiction picture books about anything from the countryside to uh, digger trucks, to dinosaurs. Um, they have an excellent range, which starts off at a very basic level and moves right through to books, which are certainly suitable into Key Stage 1 and on. And that's an excellent way of um, children really enjoying to learn about you know all sorts of really important topics for understanding the world around them.
1: Absolutely. And, and flying eye books are another absolutely cracking one. Uh, we were talking a little bit about nonfiction books earlier and whether they're picture books or not. Uh, and again, it's part of that slippage of what is a picture book? What age is it for? Um, but I definitely think these nonfiction books, you know, there's one called Shackleton's Journey, which I think is used quite a lot in mm. Key Stage 1 and 2. And there's another one by Flying Eye, which is curious about crocodiles. They have a whole series of different animal type ones, which the facts are really accurate as far as I can tell. And the children love them because I do think children, maybe particularly boys, if I'm being gender specific, love nonfiction and facts.
0: Would we keep things like eyewitness books out of this, like more reference books out of this conversation? Cause as a kid, those were those were those were my jam, looking at like medieval, you know, suits of armor and you know, endless facts that I don't don't ever remember, but I always found those fascinating to, and I, I felt it was like an in, in, uh, encyclopedia that I was. I felt that I could engage with as a kid. I, I mean, bring them in. I think we
1: should just be open about what is a picture book, and 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 if it's providing that additional learning for children through the pictures as well as the words, then why not call it a picture book? You, I think, Aaron also wants to talk about graphic novels, and uh, and just mention that.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- My my sort of use of of picture books, I've got lots of experience with with the early years up to up to 15 months because of my son. And and I've read those countless times. And then a big sort of gap in my expertise until you hit sort of middle school, high school and and my use of graphic novels in, in some of my courses. And those are typically nonfiction. Well, The the ones I've used have all been nonfiction and just ways of engaging kids in what could be a traumatic topic or a difficult topic and allowing them a way to to visualize it and process it. So mouse is the big one that always comes to mind. And uh, David and I just sort of realized it's recently been banned uh, in Tennessee uh, because of its use of foul language, uh, which is an interesting reason to ban a book on the holocaust but so that's one um i don't know have you guys used graphic novels much
1: yeah i've um i'm actually teaching diary of anne frank at the moment uh to year six and obviously the diary of anne frank is written prose no pictures at all um but there's a graphic novel version of it and i'm not using the graphic novel in, in, in its entirety neither am i using the anne frank the definitive edition i'm using the children's edition the but I think the graphic novels pictures do lend something to the to the teaching, because they give a very visual sort of look at this, Isabel.
2: Um David's a Shakespeare purist, so he might start shaking in his seat at this one. But I have used um graphic novels slash sort of sophisticated comic versions of um Shakespeare to teach year eight, so 12, 13 year olds, um, who perhaps um, suffer a little bit um, in terms of their literacy understanding. And it was a fantastic way for them to enjoy Shakespeare whilst understanding more clearly what was going on by the power of the picture. So um, they saved my bacon. In fact, I would say when it came to teaching Shakespeare to children that perhaps struggle a little bit in English.
1: I think you're right. And do we mention dual coding as as we haven't mentioned this. Dual coding is the idea, not the idea, it's it's just how we learn through both the oral loop and the visual loop. So we take in information through both. And picture books do that. Not just one, it's not just the pictures, it's the words as well. And that uh, means that they've got to be good for all
0: ages because it's going to enhance
1: learning. In,
0: in terms of all... All ages, the, the first time I ever saw a graphic novel used, um, I was in university and it was in a history class I was in. And our professor had us read a graphic novel called uh, A People's History of the American Empire. It was American history class. And it was, it's, it's based on a book by Howard Zinn. And it was a great intro to a lot of historical events that we could then sort of get the overview through the graphic novel and then dive deeper into it with, you know, primary sources and things like that. But it was it was our intro in this course to a lot of historical events. And I thought he used it in a brilliant way. And then I, in turn, uh, used that same graphic novel in my middle school courses um, from time to time in sort of modeled kind of what he did, because I thought he did such a good job of using it as a as a accessible introduction to sort of complex historical events. It
1: makes me think of the book Where the Wild Things Are, um, which is another absolutely wonderful book. Um, I've used this with uh, sort of 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds to teach them about ideas like post-colonial theory, Marxism, a number of other sort of structuralism and things like that, because it's a really helpful way of getting them to engage with something again, looking at the pictures and thinking about the a simple narrative but one with a lot of complexities to it when you approach it with with sort of older pupils or sort of people who are about to take sort of some big exams it distills everything down to a really fine point of well okay if you were looking at this from a a structuralist point of view or or a post-colonial point of view what kind of things are you seeing in there and suddenly all this stuff comes out and they start to kind of notice things that they they wouldn't really notice in a book like um maybe an older book, or rather they would notice, but once they'd seen it in a picture book, then they are able to spot it in a in a much longer novel. So that's that that's why I feel I think these books can be used with many different ages in schools. Beyond schools, do you enjoy reading picture books as well in your aside from your children?
0: I'd I probably read, you know, the same picture books a good You know, I'm reading a picture book uh, a few times a day, so I I don't really have time for uh, uh, picture books outside of my son's interests. But um, I don't know, Isabel, do you you find yourself in in the picture book aisle going, I'm going to get that one because I I think it's cool?
2: Boys, I fantasize about having time to do things like read books. It rarely happens with a four and a two-year-old and a household to run. So I I weep inside internally frequently from the lack of time for me to do any reading for myself. So, no, I read very little beyond the picture book with my children.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm obviously I've got no children, so I just go into school, I do my teaching, I come back home. But I would say, and this is someone who kind of loves Goodreads, is that if you want to get your reading count up, it is very easy to skim through a picture book and finish it within a few minutes and say, Oh yes, I've read 12 books this year already because like <laughs> 10 of them are picture books. Um,
0: Put please. your star sticker on your book counter on your wall. Absolutely. Actually,
2: I have to say um, sometimes when I've gone home to where I grew up, um, I've got some of my childhood picture books there. And when I felt particularly tired, probably when I've had a, no sleep from a, irritating little baby, I have taken upon it to read something like Little Grey Rabbit again. And there is something very comforting and soothing in doing so. So you're right, maybe I should pick up picture books more frequently than attempting to read the horrors of Prince Harry's memoirs.
1: Maybe that's a good place to leave it with the injunction that more adults should pick up more picture books. And that maybe that would be the way forward. (laughs) <laughs> should we say to our listeners a goodbye we've we've had a great chat it seems like it's time now to to say farewell uh, isabel it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on and giving us so much of your knowledge and your enthusiasm for this topic thank you for giving up your time
2: thank you well thank you for having me
1: you're welcome you've been listening to the rest is education with me david marshall me
0: erin Huber,
2: and a little guest isabel rich